0: Today we're talking to Steve, the CEO of Teslio, about their modern approaches to app testing, payments testing, and more. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO.
1: It's good to see you, Joel. How you been, man?
0: Dude, it's great to see you. I'm super excited. I got I was working out this morning and something like popped in my upper back, and now my voice sounds a little off but I feel like fine. My back feels fine too. So I'm like, I don't know what to do about that. you popped your
1: back and got a frog in your throat. Like I didn't know that was a thing.
0: (laughs) I'm not a doctor, I don't know. But I asked my wife, I was like, what should I do? And she's like, maybe you should go to a chiropractor. So my back feels fine. And she's like, wait, just wait 24 hours Happened this morning. And I was like, all right, I'll wait. I'll see what happens. It's uh, it's
1: turned into a little bit of Seth Rogen is where I'm where I'm going with it, which I like <laughs> Seth Rogen a lot. So there I think go. you should just you should just roll with it, man.
0: <laughs> so tell me about Teslio. Am I saying that correct?
1: Yes, yes. Well done. It's a made up word. Um, test L I O Um So the company's about ten years old. Um, it's a testing services company. It's technology powered. And we work with some really big and innovative companies to help them solve really tricky problems in the area of quality engineering and quality assurance.
0: Where do you draw the lines of like, you seem like you test so many things. Uh, everything from when I was prepping, I saw that like Super Bowl, World Cup, like giant digital events, the OTT devices, apps before they go on the app store. My mind was very narrow to testing because I was a like an enterprise software engineer, for lack of a better term, and so I just considered testing as far as like the test I would write with my Ruby code and test driven development. But this is a whole other level. This is testing multiple things, multiple industries. So where do you draw the line? so as you probably experienced
1: um as you were developing and automating unit tests yourself and responsible for the code you were checking in and then as you've worked with lots of ctos and bps of engineering shift left it it is a real thing it works a pyramid-centric approach towards software testing is logical the majority of testing should happen at units and api levels and end-to-end systems if they come together At the same time, though, the stakes for end-user experiences are higher than than ever before. So the industry, I think, has advanced a whole lot in shift left. What we see is that there's also a similar shift right that's occurring where companies are investing more in exploratory testing, visual testing, usability testing, accessibility testing, location-centric testing, payment verification testing. And so when companies have experiences that hit the glass especially if they're hard to roll back so pure web i'd offer is different i know launch darkly was a guest of yours. we love launch darkly and systems like launch darkly that allow teams to intelligently try things out feature flag roll back which works really well for web but when you're releasing a native app or you're integrating a payment experience or you're hosting the super bowl or you're about to deploy a beta release to drivers and you're a global mobility provider, the stakes are really high and, and things need to work. And I think that that's where TestLeo is really, really well-suited. We think of these as like moments that matter of software releases where you want to put extra energy and emphasis to truly ensure a great end-user experience. D- does that help, Joel? Did I, did yeah. I get to what you were, you were looking for
0: there? Yeah, well, we're headed in the right direction. So uh, right. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to approach it from a lot of different aspects because I just, this is how I understand something. I attack it from a bunch of angles and then I leave with my understanding. So if I was going to do like integration tests or some type of feature test uh, to, you know, replicate an end user experience and then check that these certain things are working. Um, well, first of all, typically I'm, te- I'm checking just for uh, the functionality of, of the post actually happening, the response actually happening. I'm not actually looking I don't have any systems to, like actually look at the screen and look at aesthetics or end user experience. So that's that's one huge benefit. The second thing is when I am doing those those types of tests, I'm typically like bumping up like a Selenium browser or some sort of headless type browser or something. And there's so many different types. Like when I send an email campaign, I have a cool little tool that'll show me like what it's going to look like in a hundred different platforms. Right. And so to get that, I couldn't imagine myself writing and implementing tests and there's so many test cases to test. So this part of the question is how do you help figure out like how many test cases to test when there's like an infinite number when you're working with a client.
1: And then as you think about how many test cases, which of those should you automate and, and which of those should you intentionally use manual testing for? And so like, like many things, it, it really varies broadly depending upon the team, the maturity of the team, the pace of deployment, what, what sort of software deployment approaches the different teams are using how big the problem is, what the risk profile is. So I'll I'll give you an example that might be on the, maybe the opposite end of the spectrum of what you were describing. So we do work with large software companies like Microsoft. Um, And there's, there's a team at, at Microsoft that has a product that many of us know and love. And the stakes are super high for that product. And the team has measurement as well as compensation systems that are tied To a completely bug-free experience and the approach that that team takes is a multi-release gate approach they have i believe four now different release gates that they go through and tesleo is actually the final release gate in working with this team so what they've said is because the stakes are so high we want to do all of what you described at scale in different ways and more and then where tesleo comes in is this machine and human approach to ensuring that the end user experience is great and a lot of times that tends to push out towards multiple device os combinations so on average and this varies quite a lot too but when we work with companies each test run covers 24 device os combinations and we have 1200 different hardware devices in our global network so we can test against a lot of different types of hardware. And for some companies, that really matters a lot to them beyond just like a standard, say, Chrome browser instance. Um, so let me pause there and see if that went in a direction that, that helped.
0: Yeah. You know, things now are becoming very hardware specific. I was having a conversation the other day with um, a guy that's building an offline chat GPT, uh, which is using specific hardware that's only available in certain phones. Right, And so being able to pick the specific hardware and understand how it works across, I didn't realize how many different devices there were and how many different types of hardware and also how in different platforms, they only let you target phones in specific ways, right? Like you can't, from what I understand, you can't uh, target a specific version of iOS and make it available or not, but you can target like a hardware segment, which was interesting. Um, So now that we're getting such a huge array of devices, hardwares, and systems to test that at scale becomes even more complicated, right? Very much so.
1: And devices vary so much by different countries. So for example, we've helped sky launch into Africa um, and we work with a large African messaging um, or African continent centric messaging company called IOBA. And the device profile, oftentimes these are, these are $10 smartphones you know, that are being sourced from small providers in China, available from communications providers and retail outlets. And so th- those devices are really different from what might get tested on the National Basketball Association, for example, is a client of ours too. And so we'll test in places like Rio, because basketball is super popular. And the experience in Rio, there you have a translated, localized experience of the MBA app that has to be like amazingly authentic for what's happening in now time in Rio. And so the device is different and the experience matters. And, you know, maybe at some point too, we could have a a conversation about about localization beyond just a linguistic translation, um, because that's also a big driver for companies that are really operating at massive scale and thinking about how authentic that they need to be in different markets.
0: What does that mean, authentic? That means
1: that, so for example, we work with a top three social media provider. And for that social media provider, they want to ensure that the experience of their product is true to the culture, which is a combination of history, sociology, trend, and language. And so that when they localize, they will go through translations and they will go through different screen modifications and even feature modifications. And then they'll use Testlio with people on the ground in those countries who are a combination of linguistic and testing experts who who actually know what the experience of that product should be because they're authentic users of the product. So maybe to even take a step back in order to tackle something like that um we had to go through about 2000 potential testers to build an initial team of 200 people to serve this customer and what the customer demanded was that not only you know do people really know testing but but that they have a very high expectation for the experience of the product and and this this particular company may only release in some of these countries we work with them in 62 countries right now they may only release two or three or four times per year so it's unexpected when these releases are coming they're not scheduled a lot of times things come together and there's a decision that's made and so that's where that elasticity or that
0: burstability
1: of testing really comes into play too
0: did that did that help yeah, give you a sense yeah. of yeah you guys do a lot it's it's huge Um, What is happening within a company for people that are listening that might be considering using a service like yours, what type of conversations are typically happening in their company before they come and find you?
1: So uh, we're, we're, we're thrilled to be here, Joe. We love, love the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us. Um, Our our clients are typically chief technology officers or, or their equivalent. And so many companies have quality teams internally, Yet the quality team works in close partnership with the CTO, SVP of engineering, who really sets a release and a bug tolerance and a testing strategy for the organization. Um, So we often come when companies are ready to experiment with a a new testing strategy. And in some instances, it's been, hey, we tried 100% automation for a couple of years, and we realized that that has some pros and cons associated with it. So there's a large fintech company that uh, their CTO came to us about a month ago and said, you know, we sense that it's time now to integrate a new approach to manual testing into what we've been doing in a world of 100% automation. With other companies, it might be that, well, we've gotten pretty good at manual testing. Maybe they're using a crowdsourced technique as well. And they realize we're not automating enough and we're not automating quickly enough internally. So, can you help us accelerate the pace of, of automation? And then, for some companies, there's this sense we see this quite a lot that we've been doing pretty well in automation. We started with our unit tests, and we're all the way up to now, visual and functional automation. And you know what? We've been doing some manual testing too, and that kind of works well. But the two things are like completely disconnected. You know, manual testing happens over here, and automated testing happens over there, and it's it's got to be there's got to be a better way, right? And so we have a methodology that we call fused software testing that brings automated and manual testing together. And it really handles the fluidity and pace that's needed in a modern DevOps-driven r- release environment. So it's usually this sense of, we want to go faster. We want to try something different. And in some cases, Joel, it's it's cost too. Um, so what what we see with with world-class companies is that they'll spend between 10 and 20% on quality as a whole. And maybe we could have a conversation about how do you think about that? How do you measure those, those economics? But sometimes quality costs can creep up and companies feel like that they, they just might be spending too much. And so they want to see, can I ensure great releases, world-class end-user experiences, and, and actually save some money in the process? Um, especially in the world that we're a part of right now where companies are so cost-conscious. 10 to 20% of what? Of overall software development spend. Okay. So you can look at that as, you know, how much do we spend on our core development team? Do we have any dedicated quality resources? And some companies don't. So they may think of a percentage of time that's spent on quality as an element of their overall software development spend. Some organizations have an outsourcing partner, some have an in-house team and an outsourced partner. And so thinking about this sense of how much do I spend to help my technology be great at the 10 to 20% mark and it's different some companies are significantly less and some companies need to be significantly more depending upon the world that they're in. If you're in a regulated industry, you know, if you provide medical technologies, you know, your, your ratio might be much higher than 20%. But that's that's a range that oftentimes um helps companies enter into the conversation and the consideration of what's my spend tolerance, what's my bug tolerance, and you know, what do I want to do strategically, and how open to experimentation might I be in the world of quality too.
0: How do you measure the cost of not doing this? So,
1: so there's, a, there's a concept of escaped issues, um, and an escaped issue is arguably something that hits production that should have been caught somewhere along the way. And so when when we see companies testing, um, whether we're testing for them or they're testing in, in other ways, we hold that for every thousand hours of testing, you should see w- one or less escaped issues. It's a 0.1% escaped issue to hour of testing ratio. And so there's this sense of if you're doing things and you're seeing more escapes, then maybe you need to change the approach that you're undertaking, um, or again, if you feel like you know what it's it's taking too long, measured by clock time or calendar time, you have the sense of of speed and pace, is another indicator. And if you know your releases are delayed based on the approach you're taking to testing, that may also be like a hidden cost of not not considering other testing strategies.
0: How are escapes different from bugs? Yeah, a, an escaped issue
1: would be a bug that should have been caught through your testing standard. So it's a way of categorizing your bugs. So, so like, let's just pretend you build code and you just, you just ship it. Well, then you don't really have escape issues because you're arguably not testing at all. <laughs> but <laughs> you, if you have, have all a,
0: sorts of issues if you're doing that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> All sorts of issues. But if you're a big company and you have four gates of testing and you still have issues or bugs escaping there, then you know something is probably broken along along the way, and, and sometimes it's a process break, sometimes it's a technology break, you know. But th- depending upon your level of investment and the sophistication of your combination of people and machines, you know, you can have very different thresholds. That's why we just give like a like a like a basic you know escaped issue per hour of testing rates. Um, w- we also see that when humans are doing testing pre production code's pretty good, processes are pretty mature, humans will pick up about 0.3 issues per hour of testing. And that number varies dramatically as well too. Um, but what we'll, we'll often see as a signal of a good partnership with our clients is that number might start higher when we begin working with a company. It might be between one and two, one and two issues per every hour of testing. And if it stays high like that, well then perhaps there's something with, wrong with the feedback loop. That, you know, processes aren't changing as bugs are being caught, they're not being addressed or remediated, fixed, merged, etc. Because typically a healthy partnership for us is that that, that, that um, issue per hour of testing rate is going, is going down over time. And then, you know, depending upon release velocity, how much we're regressing, how much we're doing new feature testing, it tends to kind of stabilize in what seems to be a, a healthy zone. And again, that differs based on companies. Um, but it's it's interesting how often we see this you know 0.2 to 0.5 issue per hour of testing rate right across the business.
0: It seems like payments were would be an area where people really want to test, right? Because that's when the financial transactions happening. How much of the testing do you do is related to payments? It's one of the
1: fastest growing areas of the business. Um, so over the last five years, we've been doing a lot of OTT testing with media companies and sports leagues and teams. The challenge there has been 12 different streaming devices, so Rokus and Samsung TVs and PlayStations. It's a hardware-centric problem with a bit of location. Um, Over the last two two to three years, the the fast growing piece of the business has been in in payments testing. Um, You you may have seen, Joel, that um, amplified by Black Friday and Cyber Monday, something like one out of ten digital payments are failing currently. Now, it's gotten better, you know, I think two to five years ago, it was like two to three out of 10, but still one out of 10, 10% of digital payments are, are, are failing. And a lot of times it's the, it's the intersection where, where things fail. So many of us have had the experience where we're traveling and we go to buy something and our location is picked up and our credit card company puts an interstitial in between the transaction. We have to verify sometimes via a text message and it's those kind of payment handoffs between different systems you know, that oftentimes cause the challenge. And so companies then have to determine, well, do we go into the field and send people into real-world situations to try and see using all sorts of different devices if we can catch some of these potential payment failures? We do a lot of work with a large payment network um, provider and they are about to enter into a new partnership with a mobility provider. And they decided that it was so important that the whole experience from reservation, through car pickup, through lot departure, through car usage to return, to ultimate um, finalization of invoice, that that whole process had to be absolutely perfect. And so they had to send people all over the world to airports. You know, they've been building this, this partnership, you know, it's very mature technology. And as we send people into airports, we found sometimes that, oh, the pop-up that's supposed to happen as you're leaving the airport lot was coming in a day later. Oh, okay, well, why was that? What? Where was the problem in the handoff? What was de- What was delaying it? And so those sorts of things are really hard to pick up if you're only doing lab-based testing or you're doing testing with just an in-house team. You can do testing like that at big scale for these gotta use the term moments that matter, these critical moments that matter.
0: How much work does it put on us when it comes to testing? Do, you, do we just give you our product and you tell us like all these things that should be tested and then we add some extra special things on top of that? Or do we have to do 100% of the work? Where is Where does that lie coming up with test cases, I guess?
1: There's a few different approaches which which seem to to work well for a lot of our clients. Um, one is exactly what, what you described. So we have a team of engagement managers and testing managers and testing coordinators, and they take builds um, and they ensure that machines and humans are equipped to test in in smart ways. Um, And developing the instructions to test is is a perfect LLM problem. Um, So earlier this year, we started applying generative AI to this whole test case development process. And, And it turns out that using um for, for us in this case it's the azure instance of open ai because we have a partnership with microsoft and microsoft ensures that data is extractable and that it's protected and that it's confidential so we didn't want to just throw things into open chat GBT since test cases are our clients data so we put this data into this segmented version of OpenAI, and we can create test cases 30 to 40 percent faster and we can also refactor test cases because there's not only the initial set of instructions that you develop, but then anytime the product changes, your test cases, if you're doing regression testing, for example, should also change along with that. So refactoring test cases is also much faster using large language models. And just to maybe go a little bit more on, on AI, there's there's also the opposite end of instructions, which an issue for us is something that needs to be captured in a way demonstrated reproducible, all sorts of metadata, tags, prioritization, um, severity against it, then sent into our customer system. So about 70% of our clients use Jira. And our platform where we do all the work hooks into Jira. There's a bi directional integration where we push things into Jira, then we get updates as things are happening in Jira. And it turns out that if you give a tester and a test lead the opportunity to run the issue through a large language model that's tuned for what we're trying to do, that the issue is, we, we estimate about twice as trustable, which is grammatical clarity, clear structure, no typos. Because it turns out that you know, when humans see an issue and it's messy, they, they don't trust it as much, which means that they then may deprioritize it, which could actually be a mistake. So, this like speed of the test case and trustability of the issue, those are really good um, AI challenges. Now, to your original question of like, how hard is this for companies? So, that the one model is just give us the build. The second model is some companies have test cases that sit in systems like X Ray um, or, or Test Rail, for example, and we have integrations with those systems. So, we can take a build in, we talk to CI CD pipelines, we use te- test flight, lots of different ways to take builds it also take test cases into our platform from third-party systems. You know, if companies already maintaining those, we don't need to duplicate the efforts. And then I'd say the, the third model is that companies will sometimes c- come into our tools with us. We have this partnership, sometimes with product leaders, sometimes with quality leaders. And we're really co-creating how to test things and when to test things. And it's, uh, it's not a fully managed service partnership in that case. It's kind of a co-managed testing experience. Is that I know, Joe, I threw a lot at you there. I hope that wasn't too much.
0: No, 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 not at all. I, what was interesting to me is I didn't know quality managers existed. Tell me about those types of people.
1: So m- many companies have directors or vice presidents of quality engineering. So th- these are companies that are operating at scales of hundreds or thousands of software developers. And the vice president of quality engineering... Oftentimes reports directly to an SVP of engineering or the CTO. And they're thinking a lot about process, tool, and partnership in order to ensure the velocity and integrity of, of the release. And so there's like the quality of the engineering process, and then there's the quality of what the engineering team produces. And, and those teams will sometimes have quality managers and quality analysts. People are doing manual testing, full time dedicated. They'll sometimes have software developers who are building automated test scripts. Sometimes they're called quality engineers internally. And in some cases, these teams will really choose to crowdsource or outsource the, the majority of that work. And so we we love when teams have quality organizations internally because it's a, it's a demonstration of a commitment to quality. We, we have some clients where we are their, their quality solution, but usually this partnership model where there are in-house members embedded within the engineering team that, that are driving quality standards and testing quality hypotheses. Those are awesome folks for us to, to, to partner with. So while the CTO might set the strategy and decide to you know bring TestLeo in, it's that internal quality team, if it exists, who can often ignite great experiences.
0: That's what all the CTOs are doing right now. They're going to testleo.com, and they're signing up. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. Okay. So how do you test Super Bowl and World Cup type events? What do you like, what do you even begin to do to test something like that?
1: Yeah, those are those are fun. So um it's been it's been an honor to work with this is public, Fox and Paramount. And Paramount's now the parent company for CBS. You know, so for those of us in the US, we know CBS and Fox is primary broadcasters. So they've had Super Bowl rights for the last five years. And now we've also publicly disclosed that Peacock, which is the NBC streaming service, is a client of ours. So if we continue to do work well, we should test every Super Bowl going forward with the three primary broadcasters who rotate the rights each year. And each company does it a little bit differently. But what you can imagine is that there's a distributed war room that starts to build up to game day and that uses techniques of development, monitoring, and testing on increasingly large-scale important events. So you might start with a Sunday game and say, well, what if we treat it as if it was the Super Bowl? And then you may have an NFC playoff game, and then you may have the NFC championship. And then you may, depending on the year, have a World Cup game, or you might actually have a a pay-per-view fight that has a massive audience. And a lot of times you're preparing for a big front door challenge you know people are coming in all at the same time you're preparing for is your advertising firing if you're selling it at all by location and you know, many advertisers still sell local tv markets and so how do you apply that to digital so that you don't get these weird lags or just wait you know we'll be right back with you that's you know w- wasted ad revenue um, then also, how are you tracking everything? So are your analytics systems operating well also? And, and how is that operating for hundreds of millions of people? You know, across most broadcasters we see are focused on 12 OTT devices. That gives you a, a lot of coverage, at least here in the U.S. But there's all sorts of different firmware and operating system issues even associated with those device family. And a first-generation Apple TV is really different from a recent Apple TV. You know, we live in Texas, so we actually have, I mean it's a little embarrassing to say, but we have five Samsung TVs. I have three kids and you know, we're lucky to have some space here in Texas and each of the experiences of running um digital apps natively on those Samsung TVs is is really different in just my household. So, you could say oh, me TV is got, an OTT yeah. device, but yeah, you get it, right? It's really different.
0: We have One, I have an eight, like you're on an 85 inch screen right now in front of me, like back a couple feet. And I'm I'm
1: sorry that you have to, you have to see me in 85 inches. I should, I should, I should back up a little bit there, there, (laughs) Joel.
0: So, what is signal driven testing?
1: Oh, signal driven testing. So, when companies start to integrate the different tools that they're using to build release and, and test products and, and even to support their customers and, and to pay attention to what people are posting on things like review sites they start to have more and more signals of the end user experience the quality of their technology and so signal driven testing is a, it's it's a mindset and a methodology which says you should be tuning your testing constantly on where you're getting signals that demonstrate that maybe something is escaping, going back to our escaped issues conversation from before. And so a signal could come from the app store. And it's not just a one-star review. It's often the detailed content that sits within the app review. Because you may get a five-star review that actually tells you that the person had a problem. Like you might love Roku, and you give Roku a five-star app review, and then you would talk about this horror movie problem and the inability to filter out content. Well, that would be a signal. And so if we're mining the app store intelligently and we're interpreting and using sentiment analysis and other forms of intelligence to, to pull these signals out, well, those signals then should be hooking back into your test cases to determine, okay, did we miss something in testing? Or in certain cases, signals can very rapidly be turned into issues. You don't have to do more testing. You can see that the signal is truly a problem. So companies use systems like Zendesk and too often, customer support is fairly disconnected from quality. So just like DevOps and quality, I think, are coming together. I think support and quality are coming together as well, too. And so how do you take advantage of what Zendesk might tell you? If you use Darkly and you find that you're feature flagging things on and then frequently turning them off, well, that's, that's a signal, perhaps, that something that is creating a candidate for a feature flag on isn't going through the appropriate testing. So how do you then interpret that and change some of your processes? So we think right now there are nine different categories of signals that can be used to drive quality processes. And, and really it's probably pretty old school. It's all, it's all about continuous improvements. You know, when, when quality, we see this a lot with our clients, when it, when it seems to be kind of dialed in and it's working, that's usually an indicator that we're not thinking of what more we should be doing or what we should be changing because products are changing, technologies are changing, and end user expectations are changing. And the signals are out there. It's just how do you interpret them, prioritize them, and then and then help teams also who are, are always just way, way too busy. You know, most of the engineering organizations we work with, maybe all of them, have backlogs that just like they're impossible to get to. So then, you know, as more and more things are coming through, well, how do you really take an intelligent approach towards Remediating the things that have, you know, ideally a high return. You know, help help company grow revenue, help retain users, um, lower cost for the company itself, and then have a reasonable investment to to fix. And that you know that ROI of of issue remediation is an important thing as well too. So that that's how we think about signal driven testing.
0: That's interesting because so are you actually doing the sentiment analysis off of. App Store-type reviews? Are you partnering with somebody that does that?
1: So we, we partner with a company that has rights to take our customer-owned App Store review data and to have that sit within the Testlio system with, with permission. Get this notion that we're a repository for our, our client's content, you know we don't own it, they own it, we keep it highly secure and confidential, um, etc., so then we've been using some third-party technologies, some appropriately used open source technologies, and some proprietary technologies to turn the review into a signal. And, and we're, still, we're still learning a- along the way. I think you know, we're, we're quite good at taking certain signals, and, and other signals we're trying to, to better understand what they, what they mean. And and a lot of it we do in partnership with our clients too. So we may introduce the idea and run then an experiment to see like if we pay more attention to this particular type of signal, what, what might it do for us? Uh, and another example are flaky automated tests. So you create automated tests and then they're giving you positives or negatives, but are they false or, or true? And so a flaky automated test could be a type of signal that you really want to pay attention to. And so the journey might be, not about the software itself, but about your automation journey and how do you make test automation of a higher quality standard, if that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, the more bugs we can find, the better, All right? That's, that's what, it, that's, what,
1: that that's, that's the is goal, let's <laughs> <laughs> so, find Well, you know, we, we like to say the first goal is to not ship bugs. We can have a, a great partnership with, with some of our clients. It's really an assurance, if you think of quality assurance. Like it's, it's really about helping engineering leaders sleep well at night by not shipping any bugs. So we have very successful partnerships and we report like zero issues. Whereas in other cases, especially for nimble companies, you know, emerging companies, high velocity companies, companies that have a higher tolerance risk, well then it's about you know how quickly do you cash? What's the cost per bug effectively? How much does it cost to remediate? Are we sending too much noise? Yeah, because we'll see sometimes that based on prioritization and severity marking the way that things get tagged, you know, things may turn out to be heavily skewed towards what our customers perceive as low priority issues. And and, and clients then might say, well, hmm, should Teslio send us these low priority issues? And most of them will say, yes, we still want to know. As long as it's a valid reproducible issue, we, we want to know that it's an issue, even if it's something that, you know what, we're not going to tackle it now from a prioritization standpoint, because we know we have this next major overhaul and probably this thing is going to get merged into a, a whole other thing, um, but you know certainly anything that might be a, a P1 or a SEV1, like like those are the kinds of things that most companies are looking to address really quickly. And we're trying to help companies better measure the addressability of of issues and the timeliness to address as well too. So so one metric that we're experimenting with some with some clients is what what percentage of issues the Tesla provides. Are addressed within 90 days, and we hold it something like 90% within 90. Partially because that's just an easy heuristic to remember. You know, are 90% of the issues is getting addressed within 90 days? But then, like, are your P1s getting addressed within hours? Not, you know, not within months, but literally su- super rapidly. And you know, they may get deployed a little bit later, but you know, how quickly is that feedback loop happening? And and some clients are picking up issues, and I mean, they're they're tackling things in minutes. It's it's really cool to see the the pace of addressability happening now, Joel.
0: That's cool. Well, yeah. My butt's always on fire when there's something wrong. You got to get it taken yes. care of. Yes, yeah. That's it. That's it. Dude, Steve, man, we made a podcast. How do you feel? I feel great. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn